At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read? Which is just awesome for Jesus to say. God say that. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those that were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath but are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So, the way the way it worked back then, and it's really kind of cool, um, there would be, you know, fields, and they'd be growing whatever they were growing. And in this case, they're growing grain. And there would be paths to get to the fields and to get home from the fields. And those paths were public access. It, it wasn't a matter, there were, there were not no trespassing signs, uh, you know, stay off my farm, that kind of thing. Any path that the farmers used or the harvesters used, any public person could use. And so that's how you'd get around, that's how you'd travel. This is before Rome built roads, um, you built roads on your property and those were the roads that everybody used. And it was totally fine, allowable, and, and actually encouraged that while you're walking along to grab some food and uh, to eat some of what you can grab. And, uh, you know, I, I lived in a place where the, the common rule was if a tree was hanging outside of a fence, whatever fruit was on that tree that was over the public property was free game. <clears throat> so you'd see these apple trees and they'd be picked bare for the part that was as far as you could reach from the street and then on into the person's yard it would be flush and full of these awesome apples that everybody let grow to full maturity, that kind of thing. So what the disciples are doing is a common thing, but they're doing it on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees and the Talmud laws that they added when they got exiled to Babylon and they added and they added and they added, listen to what these guys are doing. First of all, they are harvesting. Then they are preparing. So they're, they're, uh, they're you know, winnowing. That's what the word was. They're winnowing and threshing the seed and then they're preparing it, and then they're eating it without washing their hands. So you've got like five laws broken there. The, the harvest, the, the winnowing and the threshing, the preparing, the eating uh, without washing your hands. <clears throat> this whole list is against all of their extra laws. And that's what they're getting all upset about. Um, it, you know, otherwise normal things, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, they're so intense on the Sabbath that, that they're, they're mad at these guys. So Jesus comes back at them. And of course, these guys were experts in the law. They were experts in the scripture. And so it's kind of tongue in cheek that for Jesus to say, oh, haven't you read the Bible? 
Oh, didn't you read the scripture? Um, and he talks about David. And when David was on the run, he stops and they eat the bread of presence. And the bread of presence was bread that was put out before God in the tabernacle every week. And it was a symbolic of this is the this is our our communion, our I don't want to use the word communion. This is our dinner together. This is our shared meal with God. And it was there. And then at the end of the week, it would be taken away. And the only people that could eat it were Levites. It was sacred and it was only for the priests to eat. And when David was on the run, he went by the tabernacle and he's like, man, I'm starving. I need some bread for my men. He may or may not have had men with him. And uh, they gave him the bread. They said the only thing we have to eat here is the bread. And you can have it as long as all of your men are sexually pure. And David said, we are. And so they ate that bread. And it wasn't looked down on. Now, if you go deeper into the story, that guy eventually died out of jealousy, but it wasn't judgment from God. And it's really complicated and crazy. But Jesus uses that story to say people are more important than your loss, which is just starting to scratch uh, a terrible thing. Uh, Really going to mess up the Pharisees here in a minute. So then he tells another story. How about on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. So on the Sabbath, you could not lift a weight that weighed more than two figs. And if you lifted something that weighed more than two figs, now you were breaking the law. You were doing work, basically. But the priests are lifting sacrifices and lifting animals and lifting grain offerings. And all of that weighs more than two figs. And that's what Jesus says, means when he says, the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they're guiltless. Uh, this always cracked me up working in the church world when um, a, a preacher would carry on about how important it was that you have a Sabbath and you have a day of rest and you have a day that you don't do anything and then some people get hung up that it, on what day of the week it has to be and um, preachers work harder than anybody on a Sunday except for maybe retail people <laughs> and I was like you're telling everybody not to work, but you're working so hard. Um, all of this to say, you got to take these rules. Jesus is slowly picking away. He's picking away at all these rules and all these laws that people are using to show their righteousness. And he's blowing them out of the water. He's destroying them. And then Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. If it was okay to defame the bread of presence that was sitting in the temple for David, now there's something even greater than the temple that's here. And it's okay to pick that wheat with their hands and eat it. I think it's cool. Um, It's not Jesus. The thing that's greater than the temple, you know, when Jesus says there's something here that's greater than the temple, 
he didn't say someone he said something and I think it's because he's talking about not just him but the collection of them the, the, the group of them together the Jesus and his disciples the church the people of God are greater than the temple and then Jesus gives him a little bonus no additional charge if you had known what this means Jesus says this to the Pharisees if you knew what this meant I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath you would not have condemned the guiltless when Jesus, this, this little bit of, that Jesus says right here, this is like the thesis statement of his whole life, of everything that he does. If you would have known what this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless. See, in this context, sacrifice is the hard work of obeying the law. Obedience. Uh, there's another place where Jesus says the same kind of thing and he words it a little differently. And he desires mercy more than obedience. And mercy over sacrifice. See, the thing is, these Pharisees are so professional in their sacrificing. They're so professional in their obedience that they hate everybody else that isn't as good as them. And that is not the point. That was never the point of the law. The, the point of the law was never, ever, 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 ever to put down other people and to tell them how horrible they are and how rotten they are. Um, and it should never be the point of any rule that we have. Rules that... The, Sure, rules are good, laws are good, but the point of them is never to condemn or to pound or to err people. It's always to guide them in the right way. That was, that was always the right the, the point. The, the point of the Mosaic Law, it says in Romans, was to lead us to Jesus, to, to lead us. The, the law was a schoolmaster. Uh, the, the law was our bus driver and our nanny and our mentor until we get to Jesus and uh, to lead us that we can't follow this law it's impossible we can't do it how can I love God sincerely from my heart oh I can follow Jesus and I can submit to the Holy Spirit and that that opens the new way that's how the law was replaced fulfilled done when I, when when the my school bus driver drives me to school I go into my English class, I don't do English according to what my bus driver told me. I do English according to my English teacher. No slam on bus drivers or their bad English. So Jesus is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's more important that you would show mercy to someone then you would obey the 613 laws of Moses. That's a big deal. You can see 
you can see right away why everybody would hate Jesus, right? Uh, if they're if they're following Moses, if it's all about the law of Moses, if it's all about the the Babylonian Talmud, which added 1,500 laws to the Sabbath, uh, explained which knots you could tie, it, all of those rules. And Jesus says, it's more important that you show mercy to someone than follow even one of those laws. The Ten Commandments. Mercy is more important than the Ten Commandments. That's a really big deal. To obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, there's another place Jesus says, acknowledgement of God is better than burnt offerings. That you think about how many chapters of Leviticus, how many, how many, much of a priest's life is dedicated to burnt offerings, and that is not important as important as acknowledging God. You could be the best priest sacrificer ever, and if you, but still not acknowledging that God, acknowledgement of God is what matters. So he went on from there. He goes into a synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus just asks him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> Here's the, you know, is, is it against the law? They asked him that. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? If one of your sheep falls in a hole, are you going to sit there and look at it and be like, Man, tough luck falling in that hole on the Sabbath. I'll come check on you tomorrow. No, they're going to rescue it. And so everybody there recognizes that this person, this man, is more important than a sheep. And so <laughs> Jesus doesn't answer their question. <laughs> of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out. It was restored, healthy like the other. He healed it. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him. This is the same scenario that we dealt with last week. This is the same kind of repeated thing. The Pharisees, they love their law and their rules and their way of life so much that they are not open to see what Jesus is doing right there in front of them. Uh, they they love their political standing. They they had political power. They they had rule, and they want to keep it, and they are not going to give it up, um, even if they see the power of God right there in front of them. This is the same thing that happened with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was powerful, and when all of his gods that he worshipped were systematically destroyed right in front of his face. He did not want to give up anything to submit to Yahweh God. Again, it's more important that we have mercy on this guy with a withered hand than that we follow our laws. Um, just we, we need to be we need to be wildly interruptible in our religious things. And not hold to our religious structure, not hold to uh, all of our rules so tight that we can't deviate a little bit to have mercy on somebody, right? We should always be ready to have mercy. 
If, if we had the attitude that mercy and compassion were more important than any religious thing that we ever did, I think, I think the whole history of the church would look different, right? I know um, my life and what I do would look different if I, could, if I could fully grasp this. So they're ready to get a, go after Jesus. They're going to attack him. Jesus knows this, and he flees, and he, and he you know, sneaks away. A bunch of people come with him. He heals all of them, and he tells everybody, we got to stay secret, you guys. We, we, can't, we can't be going public. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is Matthew 12, 18, by the way. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So when you read the word Gentiles, that means non-religious people. That means the, the people that are lost, the people that are going to hell, not chosen. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That, that little oil lamp that's just about ready to go out, that little candle that's just flooded with wax and isn't long enough that he's not going to snuff it out. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Isaiah says all this. Matthew says this is to fulfill what Isaiah said. So you got to remember about prophecy. Every time there's a prophecy, there's something that related to people right then and there. There's something that related to the life of Jesus. And there's something that relates to the end of the world. And the right then and there that Isaiah was talking about, he was talking about King Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia. The king of the Persian Empire was the one he was talking about. So rewind that and read that quote again. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, Cyrus, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone. All this... Cyrus, historically speaking, was known as the gentle conqueror. And he would conquer people um, not savage. Isn't that wild? And so this stuff applied to Cyrus, but Isaiah also knew it would apply to the Messiah. Other cool thing about Cyrus. So you might remember... It was under King Cyrus that Ezra and Nehemiah got to do their work and got to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall around Jerusalem. Ezra got to rebuild the temple and they reinstituted uh, temple worship and the, the works of the Levite priesthood and the sacrifices started up again. All of that happened under Cyrus. And so when Matthew connects Jesus to Cyrus, king of Persia, you're going to think, oh man, just the great thing that Cyrus did by bringing the people back together 
as God's chosen people. And wow, and how Jesus conquered, or uh, <laughs> see, I'm already doing it. Cyrus conquered all these nations and then brought the Jewish people back together out of all these nations that he conquered. Jesus is doing the same thing. And Matthew wants us to connect those two and realize, oh, not only Jesus is Jesus like the new Moses in delivering us, but Jesus is also kind of like the new Cyrus, that he's going to reinstitute the true people of God and the true act of worship and the true life by the law which is life by the Spirit in Christ. And then, of course, what does all of that point back to? If he's not snuffing out a smoldering wick, if he is not breaking a reed, he's not quarreling or crying aloud. Gosh, Jesus didn't stand in the streets and yell at people. There's a, there's a point later on, where it's almost to the end, where he is talking face-to-face to the Pharisees, and he gets heated. Uh, there's a time where he cleared out the temple. That was not the standard uh, system of his ministry. He didn't quarrel. He didn't cry aloud. Nobody heard his voice in the streets. He says right here, he's hiding, he's laying low, he's not telling anybody. Because... He desires mercy more than sacrifice. What a great sacrifice it would be to stand on a street corner and to shout out and to proclaim and to get stoned to death and killed and martyred. That's not what he did. He wasn't crying out. He was just telling the people that would listen, right? Let him who has ears hear. He was speaking in parables so people would wonder and come ask him more questions. I think we can learn a lot from that. It's just another, it's another uh, putting flesh on, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He didn't come to crush and destroy, but he will. Because look at the end of that. Uh, Smoldering wick, all those terrible things he won't do until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. There is going to be a judgment day. There is a reckoning that will come. And Jesus will be um, snuffing out, breaking at the judgment, right? And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Remember, Gentiles was just a word so loaded with uh, ungodly, filthy, unchosen, Gentiles, oh, scum of the earth. And he is proclaiming that the Gentiles are going to hope in him. The Gentiles will be saved. Wow. Then you have this whole little section where um, Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln. And he says, a house divided cannot stand. You like that? Don't forget, Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus. Jesus said it about a completely different thing. Uh, Jesus said it when they're arguing about how he cast out demons. Um, this demon-possessed man came. He was blind and mute. So this is a big deal. There were people that were sick, and they believed that they were possessed by demons, and they had these crazy, loony ways of casting demons out of them and, and making a big spectacle and putting on a show and all this stuff. 
Jesus shows up and he's just like, get out of him, get out of him, get out of her, get away, go away. And the demons listen and they leave. Um, so that part of what the Jewish people believed and people believed then was that you played a part in the demon coming into you, like you did something wrong and you brought that demon upon yourself and that you played a part in making the demon go. Like you had to say a certain thing, you had to do a certain thing, you had to eat a certain food or um, you had to pull on a certain tree root. Yeah. And that would make the demon come out. And so for a guy that's blind and mute, he can't do anything. He can't say, demon come out of me. He can't say, I, you know, rebuke what I did to accept this demon, whatever. He can't do any of that. And he can't see any sort of activities because he's blind. It shows Jesus has the authority, not this guy. This guy doesn't have authority over the demon, and um, and the demon, when Jesus shows up, the demon doesn't have authority over the guy. Cast him out. All the people are amazed. This is unprecedented. Somebody just cast a demon out of a guy, and the demon obeyed him, and the guy is healed, just like that. So they want to know, the Pharisees are like, you're casting out demons by demons. And Jesus says, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Because if the demons are now rebelling against each other, we would just look around and we would see a complete meltdown happening. Uh, it would be visible. If, if, a, if a civil war happened between the demons, between Satan and his demons, from demon to demon, um, all hell would break loose, right? That would be, you would, you would be able to see it, and it would be crazy, and the demons wouldn't be worrying about making people sick. They'd all be rebelling against each other and fighting, and uh, it'd be absolute chaos. On the same thing, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is another word for the devil, how do you guys cast them out? Because, basically, I'm casting them out better. So, we know that there's not a civil war in hell going on. Because that would be crazy. And we know it. But we know that I'm casting out demons. And if I cast out demons like a boss, how do you guys do it? Are we on different teams? Are we, are we in a position? This is really wild. Jesus is reaching out to the Pharisees. He's really trying to get them to see that he's the Messiah and that they too can be a part of this. And uh, he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Whoa. Somebody's going to be judging these guys. That it, I, I don't know fully what that means. But Jesus is calling them out that there's not a civil war in, in hell. And you guys are, I'm going to honor you, I'm going to credit you, you are casting out demons. What makes you think we're on different teams here? Then he says this, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So he's leading them to really understand that it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus casts out demons, that he has the Spirit of God on him, that he really is sent from God. And if they realize that, then the kingdom, they, the, the next step is to realize the kingdom of heaven has come. This is it. This is the Messiah. Everything is changing. Jesus says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You know, if somebody burst into your house and started stealing stuff, um, you'd be like, Hey, what are you doing? Quit taking my stuff, right? Jesus knows that. That's common sense. But how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus is plundering. The kingdom of heaven has come. And Jesus is walking in to all of these people that are demon-possessed and plundering. I love that just that word. Um, because it, it's it's so it's so it's just conquering, it's a powerful word that the devil can't stop Jesus. That the devil has no power. The the strong man has been bound. Uh, the bodyguard of the house is locked in the closet, and Jesus is just having his way with the house and everything in it, casting all the demons out and setting people free. All right, I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, this is where we get the sin against the Holy Spirit passage. And Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, except, or but, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. I'm going to keep going, because it's all in the context. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus, at one point in this, is saying, there's no middle ground here. You are either with me or you're against me. You are either believing that I am the Son of Man, sent by God to be the Messiah and save the world, or you don't. There's no, hmm, he might be. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't do that. Then, this whole, everything, every sin's going to be forgiven. Even people that speak against Jesus, it says. What? Uh, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So this has to do with faith. This isn't, um, if I say some word and I curse God, 
now I'll never be forgiven. I met a guy one time and uh, I got to be there when, when I explained to him that this is about faith. Do you have faith? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? That the Holy Spirit of God raised him from the dead and that he cleansed you and now lives in you. And uh, that's what this means. This doesn't mean that you, you got drunk and you cursed God and you, you know, defamed all these things. Um, this doesn't mean that one time you were mad because God, you know, took your dad and you're so angry at him you just, you just curse him and yell at him. Um, that's not what this means. This means, do you believe, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is working this power in Jesus to raise him from the dead? And that's confirmed in Romans. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That, that's consistent with all this. All of your sins are forgiven when you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, and puts his life in you. That, that takes away every single sin you have, all of it. And so that's why he's saying, if you sin against the Holy Spirit, if you don't believe that all of this happened, then you don't get, you don't get it. You don't get the reward. You don't, I don't even want to say reward. You don't get to receive the consequences of your faith which is acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord of all, sent by God, died on the cross, dead, raised from the dead, raised up, and now His life, His life is in you. Jesus, He says, you brood of vipers. That is such a, uh, a I don't want to say it's vulgar. It's so offensive. It's such an offensive thing. Um, the devil is a snake. He was he was a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and um, if you're a family of snakes, you're just a family of Satan's. You're just a family of devils, and that's what a brood of vipers. You you're a bunch of offspring of Satan. Wow. How can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is where it goes back to I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? If out of our heart we speak hatred, if I am, oh, I hate this person, oh, I hate these people, um, if I'm criticizing, if I'm cutting down that and this, that's because that's in my heart. And that's not the kind of language Christ uses. Christ didn't snuff out the smoldering wick. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He shows mercy. So have mercy in your heart. Have good in your heart and speak good about others. Uh, this is a real, a real signal to, to pray about and to, and to repent about, right? Um, guard your mouth and guard your words. And if you find, gosh, I really... This, this is, I've, I've had this crisis a couple times in my life. Gosh, I'm really spending a lot of time in my head 
criticizing this person and cutting on these kind of people or or there or complaining I, my, I might not say a word but man in my heart and soul I am complaining on and on about this thing that's all worship music to Satan that is all glorifying judgment criticism critique condemnation and that is not Jesus Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God is better than all the good deeds in the world. And it fits right back in here, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is always whispering to us, always talking to us, always giving us something to think about, always giving us something to say. And it takes practice because, you know, I got saved when I was 18. So I had 18 years of practice listening to my flesh and listening to my own head and listening to the devil tell me what to think about. It takes a long time to unthink that, right? Uh, that's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be renewed that you listen to the Holy Spirit. As easy as it is to complain and gripe and, or condemn others, the Holy Spirit is whispering to us life, mercy, love, glory, holiness. And we have a chance to obey, listen to it, do it. By your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. Gosh. So they asked Jesus for signs, and uh, he did a little bit of this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, I'm not going to do a sign for you. If, if the signs that I've already done would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they all would have been saved. You guys aren't listening to me. He goes on to talk about this uh, bit about when an unclean, this is Matthew 12, 43. When an unclean spirit's gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none, then it comes back. I'll return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. This right here is a picture of somebody that wants to get right with the Lord and start doing right. They clean up their life, right? So whatever demon they had, whatever evil was in them, they get it out by their own activities. And they start getting up early in the morning and they don't cuss and they don't chew and they don't go with girls that do and they do right. And when that evil spirit comes back, it finds a clean house, a, a whole new way to, to manipulate a person spiritually. And they will. And they will manipulate that person to be judgmental. They will manipulate that person to, to be full of pride in how holy and righteous they are. And uh, it just it stokes their legalism worse than ever. You've got to depend on the Holy Spirit. We've got to be humble and just look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help. I need you to help me with every single aspect of my life. And, I, and all of a sudden, you're not proud of your righteousness, but you wear it. Uh, righteousness properly worn is the, just the greatest, most glorious thing in the world. Um, Self-righteousness improperly worn makes all of us Christians look bad. <laughs> That's what this whole thing is. Somebody that cleans themselves up by their own works and their own self-righteousness. When evil comes back, 
it finds a whole new clean slate to work with. And so it makes, it makes the person worse off than they ever were before because now they're religiously demon-possessed, basically. They're, they're religious, but in their religious holiness, they are uh, still serving their flesh and serving the devil with condemnation. And it's the, they're doing great with obedience. They're doing great with sacrifice. They're doing terrible with mercy. Last little bit in Matthew 12, this business of Jesus' mother and his brothers. And this is really good news for us. While he was still speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers came outside asking to speak to him. So, you got two groups of people, right? You got Jesus, uh, it says elsewhere, and I think it's in Luke, that they, they thought Jesus was a little loony, his family. And they're going to get him and take him home. We're gonna, Jesus, we're going to take you home, let you chill for a little bit. Um, you've got the Pharisees that are kind of on the side of Jesus' mother and brothers. This guy needs to chill. He He's casting out demons with the demons. Um, he's not serving the Lord. Then you've got the other people that think this is the Messiah. And if he is the king, if he's King Cyrus, if he's the new King Cyrus, his mother and his brothers are basically his court, right? That's the royal family. And ooh, they they are just awesome. And you know, um, let's let's idolize them. Let's really bring attention to them. Let's really honor them beyond normal honor. And if that was the case, then we'd be in trouble. Because I mean I can do the uh, DNA testing and trace my lineage and I bet I'm pretty certain that I'm not in the royal family of Jesus. Do not be afraid. You might not be either. I don't know. He replied, Who's my brother? Who are my brothers? Who's my royal family? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my royal family. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Don't get hung up that you have to be born into this. Because remember, that was part of the law, right? Gentiles and Jews. The Jews were going, and the Gentiles, eh, too bad. They're going to keep the fires of hell burning. No. Whoever does the will of my Father is in the family. Whoever does the will of my Father, which he's already said, is to show mercy and not obedience, not sacrifice, but to show mercy. Whoever does the will of my Father is in my family, is a part of the family of God, is a part of me, is is kin to me. And that is good news. That is the super good news that it's not by heredity, it's not by birthright, it is not by being born in the right country, it's not being born in the right place at the right time, it's not by following 613 laws, it's not even by following all the laws that we've made up. It's by doing the will of the Father. And by doing the will of the Father, we are invited. I don't want to even say invited. We are welcomed like prodigal son. Yeah, my son has come home. Joy. 
we are welcomed into God's family. And then once we become part of His family, what do we do? We, we live, you know, the Sullivan kids act like Sullivans. Why? Because they're part of the Sullivan family. If they don't act like Sullivans, do I keep them out? No. Because it's in their nature to act like a Sullivan. When you come to Jesus, when you the Holy Spirit comes in you, it's in your nature to act like somebody that's full of the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't go back to that dead man, that dead man that used to love sin and used to love unrighteousness. I don't go back to him. He's dead. Now I live by this life that's in me, which is Jesus Christ. And his spirit is alive in me, and that is in my nature to live. And out of that, I show mercy, and I don't worry about sacrifice. All right. God bless you guys. I hope you have a good week. And uh, this is all in Matthew 12. And I encourage you to read through it and pray through it. And just seek the Lord and just say, transform me, Lord. Live your life in me. Um, Show me how to live. And he'll do it. He loves to answer that prayer. God bless you.